welcome to another edition of the Hermeneutics Podcast. I'm your host, Naim O'Brien, and this is the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. We are currently in a short series on the seven sensible principles for thinking through scripture provided by Drs. Furr and Kostenberger in their book entitled Inductive Bible Study. The seven principles will, quote, provide a sure hermeneutical foundation that will guide our thinking throughout the practice of inductive Bible study, end quote. Thus far, we have covered the first four principles. Let us briefly summarize them here again. And this summary is taken from the table 2.1 on page 21 of their book. The first principle, the literal principle, is to take the words of the Bible at face value. Avoid reading into the text what is not there. The second contextual principle, always striving to understand the text within the confines of its historical literary and theological context. Now, these two principles were covered in episode 24. The third principle, the one meaning principle, means that there will be normally only one correct interpretation of a text, although there may be multiple applications. The one meaning principle was covered in episode 27. The fourth principle, the exegetical principle, is the meaning of any biblical text must be drawn from the text rather than ascribed to the text. The exegetical principle was covered in episode 32. Now on today's episode, I hope to conclude the series by discussing the remaining three principles, the linguistic principle, the progressive principle, and the harmony principle. So for the sake of time, let's jump right in. The fifth principle is the linguistic principle. This principle is rather simple and straightforward. Fur and Kostenberger explain, quote, The linguistic principle teaches that the original languages of the Bible must take precedence over any given translation. End quote. There is a temptation here to jump headlong into the translation debate. But the linguistic principle is not primarily concerned with the translation debate, which translations are better than others, more accurate to the originals, so on and so forth. But rather, the linguistic principle is more in reference to the translation process. Properly defined, translation is an act, process, or instance of translation, such as rendering from one language into another. Problems arise, however, in the translation process. No two languages align perfectly in terms of vocabulary, grammar, and syntax, a fancy word used to describe the arrangement of words and phrases to create well-formed sentences. A simple example I've encountered recently while learning Norwegian will demonstrate, for example, the English phrase, he shall go to the dentist. The Norwegian would say, han skal til tonlegen. Literally translated, the Norwegian says, He shall to the dentist. The word go is not used, but rather it is implied in Norsk. English and Norsk are very, very similar as both are Germanic languages, but even still, when trying to translate literally from one language to another, gaps in understanding may occur. As a result, Translators often have to make interpretive choices in the process of interpretation or in translating. For example, 
Would you add the word go when translating from Norsk to English? Or more importantly, would you remove the word go when translating from English to Norsk? Keeping the word go might make the translation hard to read as the word go would then be redundant in Norwegian. But leaving it out would leave out a word from the original text. What if you encountered a similar example while translating the scriptures? We discussed this briefly in episode 6 in reference to the language gap challenging our understanding. Quote, A language gap exists when translating any text from one language to another, because, as any linguist would rightly tell you, no two languages align perfectly in every aspect. For this reason, we must know that while every translation attempts to bridge the language gap, none can do so perfectly. Thus, it is important to engage the original languages, lest we miss nuanced meaning that may be lost in translation." End quote. This is probably most easily seen in the translation of idioms. Fur and Kostenberger provide an example for us. Quote, the phrase, husband of one wife, in 1 Timothy 3.2, means most likely faithful husband, that is, one woman kind of man. This is an example where a given idiom in the original Greek cannot be brought over into the English language in a formally equivalent way, end quote. Now, as I am currently learning to speak Norwegian, or Norsk, there are a few examples of Norwegian idioms that I've recently learned from my friend and tutor, Evan Christopher Mjus. Now, Evan, if you're listening, I apologize ahead of time for my pronunciation of your language. The first phrase is Ogo po lipinen, which literally translated means to walk on the glue stick. Now, the idiom is used to mean to be fooled. Another example is O sitta me shege i poskasa. This literally translated means to sit with your beard in the mailbox, which is an idiom to imply that you failed terribly at what you were trying to accomplish. Or another phrase, O ha vara uta in ventanat which is interpreted to mean to have been outside a winter night before. Now, this is an idiom which means, essentially, to have a lot of experience in life. Now, looking at these idioms show the difficulty referenced by the linguistic principle. The idiom above, Ogopo Lipinen, literally translated to go on a glue stick, but when Evan translated it into English for me, he used to walk on the glue stick. He did this because the word go in Norsk implies walking. So Evan made an interpretive decision in his translation to me. Either way, an American would have absolutely no clue what a Norwegian meant by saying to walk on a glue stick. Unless, of course, we specifically ask what the Norwegian meant by what he said. The original language, therefore, takes precedence over the translation. The sixth principle is the progressive principle. Fur and Kostenberger explain, quote, This principle deals with the progressive nature of revelation, end quote. This principle recognizes that the revelation of God's word occurred over a long period of time, recorded by many different authors to many different audiences. 
Additionally, God has not interacted with all men across all generations of human history in exactly the same way. Therefore, as Fur and Kossenberger note, quote, Later revelation may clarify, complete, or supersede earlier revelation, end quote. Once again, a simple example might help to illustrate the point. In Genesis 1.29, we find God's instruction to Adam and Eve regarding a seemingly vegetarian diet. Quote, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. End quote. Later, however, after the flood, God instructs Noah in Genesis 9.3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. End quote. In Genesis 9.3, then, God seems to lift certain dietary restrictions, namely the ability to eat animals. Thus, it can be rightly said that God... That God's dietary instructions to man post-flood superseded those dietary instructions given to man pre-flood. This is an example of later revelation clarifying, completing, and or subseding earlier revelation. We can also observe how God interacts with some men or groups of men differently than he does others using this same dietary motif. After the exodus from Egypt, God gives new dietary restrictions to the people of Israel in the Mosaic Law. You will find these restrictions in Leviticus 11. For instance, in Leviticus 11:2, "...speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth." End quote. Or 11:9, "...these you may eat of all that are in the waters." End quote. Now God goes on to address birds insects, and other swarming things. Why God establishes such restrictions for ancient Israel is beyond the scope of this episode, yet we see here that God interacts with Israel, or people that he has set apart for himself, differently than he does with others. Later, Jesus will rescind dietary restrictions for God's people once again. Consider Mark 7, 18-19, quote, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Quote. The point is made even more clear in Acts 10, 9-16, culminating in the declaration, quote, What God has made clean, do not call common. End quote. The point I am making here is that the scriptures ought to read as a progression of revelation through human history as God interacts with humanity. Sometimes later revelation clarifies, completes, and or supersedes earlier revelation. Fern Kossenberger conclude, quote, The biblical text comes out of the interface of God and humanity, which took place over time. We shouldn't read scriptures as if it was revealed apart from the progression of history, end quote. Now, the seventh and final principle is the harmony principle. Fern Kostenberger write, quote, The harmony principle teaches that any given portion of the Bible can only have that meaning 
which harmonizes with the doctrine of the Bible as a whole, end quote. This principle is a presupposition based on the dual authorship of Scripture. The Bible is made up of 66 books written by approximately 40 different men that contain the unified revelation of God. God is the ultimate divine author behind all 66 books of the Bible. Thus, in the same way that we would naturally expect the author of a single book to remain consistent and not contradict himself within that single book, we naturally therefore expect God as the divine author of all of Scripture to remain consistent and not contradict himself in the whole of Scripture. Thus, the harmony principle presupposes that the Bible does not contradict itself. If, then, the Bible does not contradict itself because God cannot contradict himself and he is the ultimate authority behind all of Scripture, then we would expect to see some sort of unity between the 66 books which make up the Bible. For in Kossenberger agree, quote, The Harmony Principle suggests that there will be continuity between individual books of the Bible, Even as these books may in some cases be quite distant in terms of origin, context, content, and genre, end quote. The Harmony Principle alludes to the doctrines of infallibility and the doctrine of inerrancy. The Bible has one divine author, God himself, who cannot err. Logically, then, his word cannot err. Yet there is no shortage of supposed Bible contradiction claims thrown around by critics. If you have interacted with any atheists or anorgnostics at all, I'm sure you've encountered such claims as well. Now, it is beyond the scope of this episode to address every single supposed contradiction that is out there, but we could at least address one by way of example. In an article for Ligonier, R.C. Sproul notes that there is a supposed contradiction between the resurrection accounts regarding the number of angels at the empty tomb. Matthew 28, 1-10 and Mark 16, 1-8 say there was but one angel, while Luke 24, 1-12 mentions that two angels were present at the empty tomb. An obvious contradiction, right? Sproul goes on to note that there is a difference between variation and contradiction. He writes, quote, So I said we should assume for the sake of argument that two angels were present. If so, would it not be possible for one eyewitness to be more concerned about who wasn't there, Jesus, than he was about the number of angels present, especially if one of them did not speak? I ask my friend, what word is conspicuously absent from this disciple's report that must be there to have a true contradiction? The answer was clear. The word only, end quote. Sproul's point is that the apparent contradiction was merely variation, not contradiction at all. For Luke's account to contradict Matthew's and Mark's account, Matthew and Mark must have said that there was only one angel. But they did not say this. Therefore, there is no real contradiction, only variation within the three accounts, which reflect three different perspectives of the same event. I agree with R.C. Sproul, who says, quote, The main thing that I want to say about this issue 
is that most alleged contradictions turn out to be no contradictions at all, end quote. Fur and Kostenberger agree. While commenting on the previous progressive principle, they write, quote, It should be noted, however, that a change or progression in Scripture doesn't imply that a contradiction is present. Rather, as you examine the audience, circumstances, and covenantal context of two allegedly contradictory commandments or statements in Scripture, you will find that God isn't obligated to work in a static fashion as he engages with humanity through an ever-changing set of circumstances, end quote. To summarize Fern Kostenberger's point here, most supposed contradictions are cleared up by context and are really, as Sproul noted, no contradiction at all. So the Harmony Principle recognizes that the unity of Scripture, the continuity between the 66 books, and the inerrancy of Scripture are the direct result of God being the divine author who authored it. Another aspect of the Harmony Principle that Fur and Kostenberger mention is, quote, the fact that the individual parts of the Bible can and should be understood in light of the whole. End quote. This aspect of biblical interpretation is often referred to as comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is to say, Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. Or as Charles Spurgeon once noted, quote, The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. End quote. I intend to devote a whole episode, perhaps even a series of episodes, to the idea of comparing Scripture with Scripture in the future. So for now, just know that the idea of comparing Scripture with Scripture, which Fur and Kostenberger call, quote, interpretive correlation, end quote, is to allow an interpretation or understanding of a particular text to be influenced by other related texts. For example, this Easter Sunday, I preached on the significance of Jesus' resurrection occurring on the third day. In the sermon, I traced the third day motif throughout Scripture, showing the repeated emphasis on God's deliverance or salvation of his people occurring on the third day. For example, Isaac was rescued from Abraham's knife on the third day. Jonah was delivered from the belly of the great fish on the third day, so on and so forth. The motif is so ingrained in the mind and culture of Israel that Hosea references the motif or the theme in Hosea 6, 1-2 in his plea for Israel to return to the Lord, in which he says they will be raised up on the third day. In this way, then, I allowed other texts of Scripture to inform my understanding of the significance of Jesus' resurrection occurring on the third day. Now, we will cover more examples when we get around to discussing interpretive correlation in more detail. But there you have it, the seven sensible principles for thinking through Scripture. These will act as guiding principles as we move on to building a basic or foundational method of interpreting the Bible. In the coming weeks, we will explore the inductive method put forth by Furt and Kostenberger, which contains three basic steps, observation, interpretation, and application. Now let's close with a quote from Furt and Kostenberger. Quote, Induction is discovery. And we believe that approaching the Bible with an attitude of seeking to discover the meaning of the text is most compatible with the Bible as intentional communication from God to us. <laughs>